0: Take out our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. is the story of Christ in the garden where he's beginning to be weighed down by the anguish and the suffering that he is facing when he goes to the cross. So let's uh, pray uh, one more time before we read this and ask God's blessing. Your word, Lord, is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And we need your help now to listen, open our hearts, keep us attentive to the word, And we beg of you, Lord, that you would give us your Holy Spirit in a great way that we could hear your voice as you tell us about the suffering of Jesus tonight. In his name we pray, amen. God's word. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed And said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. We'll stop the story right there. It's a truism, I think, to say that, uh, generally speaking, Americans like to win we're used to winning. Americans think they deserve to win. We're powerful and strong and we don't like to lose. It's true for sports, wars, politics, and elections. Americans like to win. Now, one journalist, as he was talking about this uh, desire for Americans and the like of winning and their being used to winning. One journalist said, the church in America has taken on that ethos too. And now the church also has become about winning. These uh, thoughts about winning and being victorious and thinking we deserve to win sometimes creep into church, churches and evangelicals' thoughts. I even read somewhere in a Christian-ish book that winning is a virtue <laughs> and power is something that we want. But the problem is, church doesn't always win. The church sometimes loses, Christians lose, Christians suffer. They're not strong. We're not all winners. We're not all powerful. Christians are sometimes even persecuted, put in jail, and put to death for their faith, martyred. And of course, the story of Jesus suffering and death that we're just starting to read the beginning of here, It's not a story of power. It's not. It's not a story of winning. Jesus, in the stories of his passion, doesn't look like a strong person who wins. Instead, he suffers in weakness and dies. So that's what we're going to start looking at tonight as this time comes now where Jesus is very close to the cross, the suffering, the ag- anguish of the Father's wrath against <clears throat> excuse me, sinners in him. And so he's focusing now on the cross and it's weighing him down. And that's what we're going to learn about uh, tonight. And so we learned last week, too, that all roads in Mark's gospel, all these stories are leading to the cross. And, and so many of those prophecies in the Old Testament also talk about Jesus on the cross, And so tonight we're going to, like I said, focus on Jesus' suffering. And I just want to, to bring that to your attention to meditate on. So first of all, let's just go through the story, and I'll point out some of this anguish of Christ as it comes. So now, the, the you know, um, what we call Good Friday, where Jesus is crucified, it's coming up, and they're in a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It was like a garden with olive trees in it, most likely, not too far from the temple. You can all picture a, you know, a small garden with trees in it. That's where they are. And Jesus tells his disciples, especially Peter, James, and John, uh, to, to stay there. You know, they're in the garden, and Jesus says, stay there while I pray. And then you read those words in verse 33. Sometimes you gloss over them, but I don't want us to do that tonight. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. alarmed and in anguish or just desolation of soul. And Jesus describes it. So, so he's greatly distressed and troubled. I mean, there's more to those words than it's even really possible to convey almost. And he says, he, he explains to them what he's feeling in verse 34. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. The New Living Translation says, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. So you see in these couple of verses, the the grief and the agony and the suffering and the distress is starting to grab hold of Christ as the cross is not far away. And it's weighing him down. And he goes a little further. Look in verse 35. He, he, He leaves the disciples there, and Jesus is starting to be very distressed and anguished. And he falls on the ground. And he prays while he's laying on the ground in anguish and sorrow. And he prays if it's possible that the hour, the hour of suffering, might pass from him. Now, that's, you know, it doesn't give a lot of details here, but in Hebrews 5, it talks about Jesus praying with loud cries and tears. This is part of that. So when you think about Jesus in Gethsemane, His soul is troubled, distressed, anguished, sorrowful unto death. He's laying on the ground and he's crying out to God with loud cries and tears. This is like, you know, the prophecies and lamentations are coming true in Jesus. Lamentations 1 says, My eyes flow with tears. I have no one to comfort me. So so let's just pause here a moment. The text is very clear. Of the anguish and sorrow and suffering of Jesus. But why is he suffering like this? Why is his why is his soul in such deep distress? Why is he why is why is he laying on the ground crying out with loud prayers to God? Well, I've been mentioning this in the story. Jesus knows what's coming for him. He knows the betrayal. He knows the denial. He knows the the evil people who are going to put him to death. The suffering, the torture, the mockery, the blood, the cross, the tears. But when Jesus, his soul is sorrowful unto death, it's not just because of the physical suffering that's coming. You've probably thought about this before. There are plenty of other people in history who have physically suffered worse than Jesus. His physical suffering was bad, but that's not the center of it. There's different angles of the suffering that's coming to Jesus, and and it's already begun to weighing him down. So I already mentioned this last time. There's like this social suffering. He's betrayed, hated, denied, abandoned, later treated like a criminal, and humiliated in in nakedness and shame on the cross. That's coming, The social uh, suffering. Isaiah 53, despised and rejected by men, oppressed and afflicted, by evil people, by foes derided, by thine own rejected, O most afflicted, he knows that's coming up that 's pressing on his soul, but there's also the, 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 the however you want to say, it, mental and emotional suffering that Jesus is coming uh, up to it's even as we 're going to talk about in a few moments that the the fear of suffering and death. Psalm 55 is, is, you know, a prophecy too. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. Or Psalm 88, my soul is full of troubles. I'm a man who has no strength. I'm helpless. There's that emotional, that mental suffering and struggling of Christ. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? But at the center of Christ's suffering that he's about to face, that he's already tasting, is suffering the wrath of God against sins that he did not commit. Jesus never sinned, ever at all. But as he goes to the cross, he's bearing the guilt and shame of sinners and he knows that the wrath of God against sin is heavy, terrible, hellish judgment. Like Psalm 88 says, your wrath lies heavy on me. And that has to do with Jesus being distressed, troubled, sorrowful unto death. The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. So I just want to stop and think about the suffering of Christ here. I mean, he's literally... Our Lord, our Savior, is literally laying in in the garden crying out with loud cries to God just after telling his disciples how sorrowful and distressed he is. This picture of Jesus weeping on the ground in weakness and sorrow might embarrass some people. It might embarrass those people who are all about power, victory, might, and toughing it out. Now, we know the story, so we might not think about it that much. But if you're, if you're hearing the Christian message for the first time, and you're thinking, okay, your Savior, your Messiah, the, the David's true descendant, he's supposed to be this great, powerful Redeemer. What's he doing laying on the ground? crying in fear and weakness. With grief and shame weighed down? Where's the strong king who faces pain and death like a man, bravely going to handle whatever comes? Where is that strong man? Why isn't he smart-mouthing his opponents like the tough guys do in the movies? Why isn't he getting his followers to fight? Why isn't he at least trying to go down fighting, guns blazing like a hero? What's he doing there in weakness, crying out to God? if you look at it without an eye of faith, you say, that looks pathetic. Who wants a savior who's laying on the ground in weakness and tears? A man of sorrows is not going to be anyone's hero. He's losing, not winning. And we're Americans. We're used to winning. We want to win. We don't want a loser to lead us, so to speak. And, and, and Paul, Paul talked about this very thing that I'm, I'm wrestling with or, or mentioning here. In 1 Corinthians, remember what Paul said, the message of Christ's suffering and death on the cross is what to some people? Foolishness. People still think that today. The message of a Messiah, suffering and weakness, it's foolishness to some people, it's just stupidity. Frederick Nietzsche was a 19th century German philosopher. He is the guy who infamously said, God is dead. You know what Nietzsche said about Christ? The atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche said, Christ was a very tortured, very pitiful, very unpleasant man, unpleasant even to himself. Because Nietzsche was all about strength. And Nietzsche said, in weakness, who wants weakness? We need to be strong. And interestingly, Nietzsche, who so vehemently rejected God, I think he basically died of a mental breakdown. But when he was thinking, he said Christ was a tortured, weak, pitiful man, and Christianity is for weaklings. And so Christians, or I'm sorry, people do Christ, uh, criticize Christianity for this. The centerpiece of our message is a suffering Savior. And we're beginning to see his suffering and weakness here in this story. And as I was studying this this week, I even, speaking about Americans liking to win, you know, and not losing, um, one conservative politician in the last, I think, four years said, you know, we've turned the other cheek, and I sort of understand the biblical reference, but that's gotten us nothing. And interestingly, John Calvin, you know, during the Reformation, he noted that some people in his day tried to explain away the fact in this story that Christ was overcome with trembling and sadness. So some people, even back then, were kind of ashamed. Well, this is, this is a little awkward. Let's try to fix this. But Calvin said this. If we are ashamed that Christ should experience fear and sorrow, our redemption will perish and be lost. And he did this, you know, he did this for us. Like the prophet says, he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By humbling himself, suffering agony, grief, guilt, shame, abandonment, fear, sorrow, he did that to rescue us from those very things. Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee thy bitter passion for my salvation. What thou, my Lord, has suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but not thine the deadly pain. Now, one, we're, we're going to move on in the story. Um, a, a note of application here is when you read about Christ's sorrow and, and weakness and suffering and ag, anguish and agony, you have to remember as a believer that Jesus understands and sympathizes with you when you're weak, when you're afraid, when you're weeping. Because he knows exactly what it's like to be undone with grief, sorrow, shame, fear, and sadness. There's literally, there's, there's literally no grief, no sorrow, no fear, no loneliness, shame, guilt, or agony that Jesus cannot understand. And that's what Hebrews talks about. Since Jesus has gone through suffering, he's able to help us when we go through suffering. He understands our weakness. And he will show us grace and give us help when we need it most. So never forget, when you suffer sorrow and grief and fear and weakness and sadness and shame and guilt, you take it to Christ, speak to him, pray to him, and he totally understands what you're going through. He sympathizes with you and he can help you through it because he knows what it's like. Now, speaking of prayer, uh, let's think about Christ's prayer. So remember, he's laying on the ground now in thirty-six, verse 36, laying on the ground, crying out vehemently like Hebrew says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, it's possible he prayed more than that, by the way. Mark is just giving us this part of the prayer. And he says, let this cup pass from me, or remove it from me. Now, what does cup mean? Sometimes in the Bible, a cup can be a cup of blessing, right? My cup overflows, Psalm 23. But here, it's, you guys know this, it's a, the cup of suffering. Uh, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah 51 says, talks about disobedient Jerusalem drinking the cup of God's wrath. If it's possible, God, my Father, remove this cup of wrath from me. Don't make me drink this cup of wrath. That's a really profound prayer. At a significant point in Jesus' life. So we can read about his agony and anguish and Christ's prayer here that if it's possible the Father would remove the cup from him, really gives us a glimpse into Christ's humanity. Now, I I freely admit that I don't fully understand this. We can't fully understand this. There's a lot of mystery here, and I don't want to go beyond what the Bible says. But in part, if we carefully think about it biblically, we can sort of get what he's getting at here. So Christ, even here when he was in the garden, of course, was true God and true man. He had a divine will and a human will. And in his humanity, as our mediator, the agony, misery, distress that was just around the corner for him caused him to pause, to fear, to stagger at the thought of the suffering that lies ahead. The closer he got to his suffering and death, you know, as a human, as a man, the heavier it weighed upon his soul. And he paused. Father, if it's possible, don't make me drink this cup of wrath. And you know, it's normal for people to want to avoid death. It's not a sinful thing, is it? We just talked about the Sixth Commandment. We want to preserve life, so it's not wrong to recoil at the thought of death. Chrysostom said long ago, human nature would prefer not to be torn from the present life. It would draw back and shrink from death. Why? Because God has implanted in human nature a love. For life, And much more for Christ, who was not just going to face a calm death, but he was going to face a death which was the wrath of God on him for sin, not his own. And so just like Jesus got hungry, you know, in his humanity, he got hungry and tired and sad and upset. So he was affected by the suffering and death that he was facing. And it caused him to pause in fear and trepidation. All without sin. But remember, he had human emotions, a human will, and feelings. Like our confession, Westminster Confession says, Christ took on common infirmities of human nature, and that would include the natural fear and terror of suffering and death. And that grief overwhelmed him to the point of a desperate cry of faith. Oh, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup. It was a prayer of faith from the sinless man of sorrows. But here's the thing. Though in his human nature he paused and staggered at the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath and he prayed that it might be removed, his human will, of course, and his divine will, but, but his human will was 100% devoted to the Father's will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He was 100% devoted to the will of the Father. Father. And so Christ, as true God and true man, his human will and his divine will were perfectly united in the overarching desire to obey the Father and lay down his life, even if it meant suffering that hellish cup of the wrath of God against sin. Jesus doesn't argue with God, but he submitted peacefully to the will of God, content with God's plan to go on. Your will be done. He forms his wishes, desires, emotions, and will to be perfectly submitted to the Father's will. So when we hear Jesus' prayer and pleading, and when we see him pause and stagger even at the thought of this terrible suffering, it it reminds us how horrible the suffering of Christ is even before he was betrayed, even before he was whipped and nailed, even before he was hanging on the cross, the suffering and the curse and the wrath of God against sin that he was about to face caused Jesus to pause, to totter, to fear, to weep, to fall down and cry out to God. And once again, you know this, he did it for us. And because Jesus did this and submitted to the will of the Father, we believers never have to face anything like he did. He did it for us, to rescue us from what he was about to face, the wrath of God against sin, abandonment, grief, shame, guilt, sorrow, for sin that was not his. He did it to rescue us from those things. So when you think of the suffering of Jesus and the agony of him having to bear the wrath of God against sin, like in this story as he's beginning to do towards the cross, you can be relieved that you never have to face that because Jesus went forth obeying the Father's will. That's the central piece of the Christian faith, the the center of the message for tonight. And there's a, a small application I also want to point out here. Speaking of Christ's weakness and tears and sadness and fears, you know, for us, even as Christians, it's not always sinful to be afraid. Uh, There is sinful fear. Uh, You you know, that's maybe a sermon topic sometime. There is sinful fear where you don't trust God and you doubt God and, and you need that reminder. Do not be afraid. But not all fears are sinful. There's natural fear. You know, when I go to the edge of a cliff (laughs) and I look over, my knees get a little weak and I get a little bit afraid and I don't think there's anything sinful in that. I back up. That's natural fear. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to cry sometimes too. Jesus wept, sobbed, cried out to God. Paul cried. Remember all the different times in his letters that Paul's weeping. Even as believers, I just want you to remember it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to cry. We don't always have to man up and be brave and tough. Sometimes in our most, the, the points of weakness, we lay on the ground and cry out to the Father in tears, and that's okay. But we should pray with a psalmist and have the mind of Christ. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Well, well let's move on in the story and finish this up. Um So this is Jesus' prayer um, in verse 36. Of course, he's crying out to God. He gets up, and he goes back to find the disciples. And what are they doing? They're they're awake, and they're praying very fervently, right? (laughs) No. They're sleeping. He says to Peter, Simon, really? (laughs) Just one hour? Can't even stay awake? Watch and pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Remember what's going to happen to Peter pretty soon. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. That's kind of a a kind word. I know you guys have a willing spirit to obey me and stay with me, but your flesh is weak, so you need to pray in order to fight the weakness of the flesh. So Jesus then goes away, and he prays again, and probably the same thing, I'm almost certain, actually later it says, he prays the same thing, He, he cries out to God, take this cup from me. And then he comes back, and this time they're praying. No, they're not. Their eyes were heavy, it says in verse 40, and they were sleepy. And this time they don't know what to say to him. They don't have any excuse. Then it happens a third time. So Jesus goes and prays the same thing. Um, It says here in verse uh, 41, and he came the, the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? So it's kind of like they're already starting to abandon him. Remember last week Jesus said um, he talked about when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. It's kind of like they're starting to abandon him already. They they can't even stay awake and pray at a you know near him. And then Jesus says, "But the time has come. The hour is here. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let's go." Now, remember the story we're reading here. I don't think there's an answer to this question, but I wonder if when Jesus says these words in verse 41 and 42, if his voice wavers a little bit because the anguish and agony that he just was facing. But, but the point here is for sure Jesus knew what's going to happen. We, we already learned that. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him. He knows the betrayer's coming, and he knows now, of course, that the Father's answer to his prayer was no. Father, take this cup from me. And the Father's answer is no, that's not my will. My will is that you drink this cup of wrath to save our people, my people, from it. Remember, sometimes God says no to good and legitimate prayer requests because they don't align with his will. That's a principle to remember in prayer. I don't want to get too off topic, but sometimes God says no to legitimate prayer requests because they don't align with his will. So Christ accepts the Father's will with every fiber of his being, and he will not turn from doing it, and he goes towards the cross. The pain, the agony, the suffering, the death, the weakness, the shame, the blood, the tears it's not foolishness to us it's not foolishness to me to think about Christ's bitter passion his weakness his tears and death that's the message not a foolishness but the wisdom of God the power of God that saves us as Paul talks about thank god For Christ's bitter passion, for his weakness, for his tears, and for his suffering. Because in them we find hope, strength, and life. Amen. Let's pray.